0: Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminar. And here we are another week, another episode of our Bible study series that we lovingly call the Bible for grown-ups. And this week we are in now part two of our study of something that we find in the gospel accounts, uh, at least in the gospel account. According to Matthew, we find it uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. Within the sermon, there is something called the Beatitudes. It's a, a teaching by Jesus in his early ministry and what he tried to explain how, if you want the kingdom of heaven, how you can get it. The problem is that everything that he said sounded upside down to everything that the world teaches us. It's no different in the first century than the 21st. I can't help but think of those people that might have traveled for hours and hours, maybe walking for a day and finally running across this new rabbi. And the very first thing that he tells them, the very first thing they hear out of his mouth is, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you've well, you've got to be poor. I can't help but think what they might have thought when they heard those words, not fully understanding what he was trying to say. Anyway, I will see you on the other side. Well, let me go ahead and get started. Uh, This is part two in our study series. We're looking at this, uh, something from the Bible, they're called the Beatitudes. Uh, uh, This word comes to us from the Latin Beatus, and that means uh, to be happy or to be blessed. And often that word, uh, blessed gets mistranslated in the Bible by a lot of folks that think that that word means happy. We talked last week about the difference between what it actually means to be happy and what it means to be blessed. And in fact, the Beatitudes themselves reflect that dichotomy or that difference between what it actually means to be happy, like what the world tells or our flesh tells us we want or need to be happy. Versus what God tells us that we need to be blessed. And when we look at these eight Beatitudes, they actually look like they're upside down. Whenever we look at them, compared to the way the world looks at being happy, being blessed, being prosperous. And so uh, this these eight Beatitudes, there's nine if you want to uh, argue. Um, uh, I actually think there are, I, I buy into that there are eight. And we'll talk later at, the, at another time about the, the uh, controversy. It's not really much of one, but it is kind of interesting. It's contained within the Sermon on the Mount. The uh, Sermon on the Mount is generally spoken of in all four of the gospel accounts. Uh, Matthew uh, places uh, his account of Jesus' teaching here. Um, at a place, if you can kind of see this little circle that I'm kind of where my finger is, let's see, uh, down here where my finger is, is Jerusalem, right? Up the Jordan river to the sea of Galilee. Okay. Probably right here at the bottom t- or I'm sorry, up here kind of t- towards like the 10 o'clock, right? That's a town called Capernaum. It's a major city in, uh, the Galilee region and probably was outside of Capernaum perhaps on a hill. Uh, In Luke, this is referred to as the sermon on the plain. A lot of people actually think that in the way that we think of it in our brain or the way we might have seen a picture painted of this, uh, probably didn't happen the way that it's presented. Literally, probably Jesus wasn't on the mountain and had a group of people around and he gave this sermon, like if you showed up church on Sunday we'd come here, I'd give a sermon. They probably, these are a collection of Jesus' teachings. More than likely, it didn't happen exactly the way uh, that it's pers- uh, described in either account, because, I'm sorry, in any of the accounts, because they're all a little different. right? So even if we were to say, which one is the literal, literal one, we're not even quite sure that we could pick that. There are a few things we know for sure. One, uh, the things that we know for sure about the Beatitudes in this Sermon on the Mount is uh, this: these are must have been genuine teachings of Jesus, because uh, even though there is slight modification, as you'd imagine, between different types of authors and styles, now not only to mention the plot line of their, you know, the message they're trying to get away across with their writing, because uh, Matthew's uh, purposes for writing his gospel. And Luke's are completely different. Not completely different, but they are different. And so they're written in such a way to push their narrative. Okay? For example, uh, Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, speaks a lot about the Old Testament, but you never really hear the um, speakers that are speaking about the Old Testament reference to the audience that they need to refer to Scripture. They just say it. And what does that indicate? It indicates that the reader would have known. They didn't have to get a, 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 the, the cliff notes version. When they read it, or footnotes down at the bottom rather, when they read a particular line in which Jesus quotes Isaiah from the old, they knew, they didn't have to go, that sounds really cool, I feel like I've heard that before. No, 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 they go, oh my gosh, he's speaking from Isaiah. So, they're written for different reasons. They are. It's okay to get comfortable by the way, uh, with, with the human interaction with Holy Scripture, right? Because um, the, the Bible is, it is in, it, in its truth, perfection. The Bible is not literally perfect. The truth contained within Scripture is perfect truth. And what I mean to say is you could start at page one, and when you think about all the books that are in the Bible and how they were written over the span of thousands of years by hundreds of different authors from different time periods in different places in the world. And isn't it interesting that you could start at page one and go all the way to Revelation and it all the all of the pieces actually end up fitting in the end. Right. That's crazy. To me. That's one of the that's one of the proofs that I need as a believer. You know, I know we can't have absolute proof. I get that. That's where faith comes in. But that proves it to me, that kind of stuff. Because you don't ever end up finding yourself painted in a corner, theologically. and go, well, why now I'm in this corner and what I thought about God or what I thought about Jesus ends up not being wrong. Because I've got this particular scripture that says this, that is inconsistent with everything else. What is so incredibly interesting is... The Bible never paints you into a corner theologically. You paint you into a corner theologically. If you find a portion of scripture that is inconsistent, we Christian believers would say, with the gospel message, the problem isn't with the theology of the Bible, it's the problem's is the theology of your heart. And in fact, that's exactly how self-examination is supposed to work. And a perfect example of this is the Beatitudes, a group of eight sayings that whenever we look at them the way the world would look at them, we would say whoever saying these things is crazy because that's not how life works. And Jesus says, I know that's what I'm trying to tell you guys. The whole thing is backwards, but I can show you how to flip the boat back over. Okay, and that's what he's doing. Probably didn't happen, but if it did happen, it probably happened up here around Galilee. The reason why that we would argue that is because this uh, the Sermon on the Mount actually happens very early on in Jesus' public ministry. Okay, when you compare that to say the Mount Olivet discourse that we're studying in Sunday school, right? All of those things—the woe to the Pharisees. We know for sure that happened on the Mount of Olives. It happened at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We know those events took place the way that they did. Maybe not here, but that's neither here nor there, except to say Jesus was proclaiming that you need to flip everything upside down if you're going to get what I'm saying from the very beginning. That's why I'm going into that thing about where and when did this actually take place, the important part. This is early on in his teaching. One of the first things he does in proclaiming his um, commission, that he, in which he has been commissioned by God to, to bring the news that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near the earth once more. But it looks different than you've ever thought it would look. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that we learn, the difference about good uh, about happy and blessed is that blessed is an attitude that is kingdom of god centric right in other words we 're not we're not it 's not about simple happiness it 's not about being satisfied uh, in our body or in our soul or with our material possessions rather being blessed is being is having the peace that comes. From knowing you have the approval of God, the smile of God, the applause of heaven, right? Upon your life and upon mine. Today, again, we're going to look at the first words that the Lord Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll read the whole passage each week as we go through the Beatitudes. We're going to read the whole passage. It's not that long. It's only 10, 11 verses. It's not that long. Um, But I would hope that even if you don't commit these to memory, I'm not asking anyone to go home and do homework. But maybe as we hear these words over and over again in our mind, we might at least commit them to our hearts. Okay. so beginning with uh, chapter five and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and when he sat down, the disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay. Um, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the family of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Incidentally, uh, there are two beatitudes that end with the clause, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's in verse uh, 3, which is the first beatitude, and in verse 10, the eighth beatitude. Now, in, um, what do you call this, literary criticism, right? In other words, uh, um, when we examine language, the written language, and how words are written and, and how things are constructed, this is called a stylistic device, right? And it, include, and it has what's called an inclusion in other words, by using the same—it's a—it's a, it's a um, pattern of ancient writing that's still used today in many forms of poetry, right? And you know that this particular poem or this thing that this is going to talk about—it has these same patterns that recur. Blessed are they that blank that blank a condition and then a result. We see that pattern. We also know there's a there's a beginning a uh, beatitude that has this additional thing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and eight concludes with theirs are the kingdom of heaven. So that it's intended for the reader to see by the writers, everything between about going back up from eight to one, all of that is what it means to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Okay. How if you you want the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Okay. Let me tell you how to get it. One, a list of 1 through 8. 9 if you like. Um, blessed, verse 11. Are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This is the ninth one that people think is the ninth one. But actually, he's not talking to anybody. In this particular instance, it's not one of the Beatitudes. He's actually turned and he's talking to his disciples sitting over here in the corner. Actually addresses them. Okay. Oh, and it's almost like a blessing. How to be blessed, how to be blessed. Oh, and by the way, you guys, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he turns back to the crowd, right? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Uh, thinking of verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First one. So what does it mean? Is it the conviction in one soul that you're of no worth, uh, that you have no value? Is it a feeling of an absence of worth maybe of self worth or self image maybe is it a spirit of shyness backwardness lacking vitality is it is it being gutless or could it even be poor in spirit to be unspiritual to be lacking in spiritual things a young boy Once once told by his father that he was worthless. That he meant nothing. He was foolish. He was stupid. He couldn't do anything right. And continually he was told this at home, at school, and in every part of society until he grew up. And he believed that he was worthless. There's so many in our world that have simply believed unfortunately that they're worthless. They're poor from an early age. Is that what poor in spirit means? Is the person who comes and says, "You know, I'm really I don't I don't really have any talents in anything." And the thing I'm doing right now, I'm only doing cuz for some reason I allow myself to do it, right? Is it a showy type humility? It's a character in Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, a character by the name of Uriah Heep, who, who kept reminding everyone how humble he was. Is that what it means? Well, it's not to be of no value. Jesus says to us today that God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You are of utmost value to God. So that can't be what poor in spirit means. Neither can it mean an absence of self-worth for the same reason. Why? Because God has promised you, God made you in the image of God. And not only did Christ die for you, but God created you and put in you Somewhere, somehow, his own stamp of approval, his own image. It can't be shyness, because there are people who are shy who are still incredibly proud of themselves, right? It can't be lack of vitality or gutlessness or even lacking spirituality. Sometimes we as Christians, even the world at large, can get this idea that graciousness or humility right? Or or poverty of spirit means to be walked all over, to be weak. Does it mean to be weak? Walked all over? Quiet in that sense of poor in spirit? Is it financial destitution? I mean, you might think, okay, Jim, you're taking, we're get it, right? But look, there are people who separate themselves from society and live in lives of poverty, believing that the Spirit has convicted them that that's what Jesus is saying here. Right? You really want the the kingdom of heaven? Be poor. Like, no money. It's not, I hope, uh, we'll get there. It's not what he's saying. Right? So what is it? So I want us to look at three things that will describe, and explain for us, I hope, from the beatitude, actually, what it means to be poor in spirit. First of all, we're going to look at the word poor or the word poverty. It's kind of the same word in Greek, which is what this is. Uh, well, uh, the, a lot of people argue that the Gospel of Matthew is probably originally written in Hebrew. But then it was written in Greek right immediately after. And it's the Koine Greek version of Matthew that we refer to. The word poor and poverty is the same uh, kind of word. It's kind of a neat word. It's neat looking. Uh, it's tokos. He is silent and then you the CH in Greek is a k, right so tokos and that word means poverty it means poor but with Greek it means more than just that right tokos means to um, to cower or to physically lower oneself as if a beggar right you don't you don't see a lot of uh, people with their nose in the air and their chest puff out, uh, panhandlers. Do you? You don't see a lot of those. I'd say they don't exist. What do, when you think of someone who's given up and is just begging, right? Not, not this. Can I have a dollar, sir? Right. It's, it's might not, not even be even raising your head. It's just, do you want to put it there? Put it there. If you don't, you don't. I don't care. Word. Tokos. That's the idea. Okay. Someone who crouches down, who bends, who is ashamed, and who begs for money for their life, for worth. Okay? It means to live in that fashion, to live beggingly. Someone who who simply doesn't even ask, doesn't go and try to get a job, right? Does not work, but begs outside of him or self for their worth For money or for wealth. That's what this word tokos means. And that's the word that was chosen that meant what Jesus was trying to convey. People who are beggingly poor shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if you take this word poor and you put it with in spirit. So poor in spirit or the poverty of spirit. It's like saying those who are poor in spirit are those who are blessed. Those who are poor in spirit are those who will have the kingdom of heaven. You could also translate it like this. Blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize that they must have help from outside of their lives. Those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the poverty of spirit? It means bankruptcy within your soul. Cleaned out. Not financially, not materially, my friends. It's not what it's saying. Although that might be the case. I don't know. The spirit can speak to you and however the spirit speaks to you. Right? I can only tell you from my own interpretation of this. Right? It's being naked. Ashamed. Poor. Right? And Jesus is trying to bring across the point that those who are blessed, those who have the approval in the eyes of God, what we're really going for here, are those who are bankrupt in their very spirits. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of interesting. John Wesley describes it like this. He says, He or she who has a deep sense Of a loathsome leprosy of sin. I love that. A loathsome leprosy of sin. Which he or she brought with them from the womb. Which overspreads the whole soul. And totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. Someone who realizes inside of God and biblically speaking. What they actually are. And more importantly, what they are in the eyes of God. It's simply this. It's a recognition of personal, moral, and spiritual unworthiness. Spiritually, morally, personally, socially, in every single realm that you can think of, of anything in the human life, right? You, have, you show, you recognize that you are in need of God. Regardless of for what you need, you need God. An excellent reading of this verse might be, Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, I'm not going to go any further because I think this is... I, want to, I actually want to hang out and, and spend some time here because uh, this is deep. This is actually basic Christianity. Remember, I said earlier, this is early on in his earthly ministry. And you can see right off the bat, early on, he's actually giving people who are willing to have ears to hear and eyes to see. He's actually given them a roadmap here if they can see it. Right, and he's doing it at the most basic level, because until you understand how upside down the beatitudes really are, no other uh, form of salvation or atonement is really going to be very uh, useful in your life, because this ba- this is the basic basis of your relationship with Jesus. This is how it's defined, and if we get the definition wrong that everything else we build upon that has a faulty foundation, right? Okay. Um, and here's the truth. I think this is so neat. I think this is so uh, fundamentally interesting spiritually to me, right? Uh, that honestly, we could, I could camp for probably another four or five hours, no, I, I don't know that I'd want to do it either. I'm just saying I could, right? Just on this concept alone, right? And how important it is on a basic ABC one, two, three level for us to, to get this spiritual truth. That the only person in this world, the only member of this church that will ever be blessed of God is the one who realizes that they are nothing. We are sinners under the wrath of a holy and righteous, uncompromisingly so, God. Realizing that God, from Jesus, the Son of God, from the Holy Spirit, gifts from them, we can't earn them, and we have not done anything to deserve them. In fact, the only thing we've we've probably earned is judgment. Word, absolutely, that we ought plead nothing but go to hell, straight to hell. Do not pass, do not go. Sin, go to or pass, go. Don't collect two hundred dollars, right? Straight to hell. The bankrupt man, the loathsome person, the man. Filled outside, inside with nothingness, with spiritual bankruptcy and and poverty, cried out to the Lord. That's the Psalms, right? And understanding that as we sit here, spiritually, physically, morally, theologically, politically, socially, We have nothing nothing intrinsically of ourselves to offer God. Nothing. And I think we need to acknowledge that without this turning into a... I just want to say, as as I listen to myself say the words that come out of my mouth, one of the things I just want to stop and and make sure that, um, that you're not hearing is... This ministry and my, my personal gospel message has nothing to do with trying to shame you into loving Jesus. Okay? So please understand, but we do need to realize, and here's why, right? And, and I, my guess is everybody here is like me in this regard, perhaps. But if you're not like me, I bet you know somebody like me, okay? I don't go to the doctor when I'm feeling well. Right. Something needs to happen to my life. To co- to convince me that I am in need of a doctor. Right. right? I need to have uh, the flu. I need to have a fever. My arm needs to be broken and right. I have to have a need before I can see my need for a doctor. And if I don't have a need and I wake up in the morning and I feel great, maybe I don't even feel great, but I don't feel broken. Something's wrong. I don't ever go. You know what I think I really need? A doctor. Not once. Nobody does that. Right? And, and, and realizing our need for a savior is the first step towards that relationship With a savior. Because it works in the same way. If we walk around in the world. Filled rich in spirit. Do you think we'll ever, ever, ever get around to convincing ourselves that we need to humble ourselves before God? Not a chance. Not a chance. Right? Those that are rich in spirit. There's never be the kingdom of heaven. And God's not pulling and holding punches and playing favorites. This is your decision to be rich or poor in spirit, right? This this really is all about your decision as to how bankrupt in your soul, how empty of yourself can you get the vessel inside of you so that God can fill you up? How much junk can you actually get out? Can you get down in there and spit shit in it? I mean, can you get that thing fully out so you can be fully filled with God? If, if, if so, then your life is about to become supercharged. Most of us live with dirty buckets, right? And God gets some in there, but there's still a lot of that junk we still like hanging around with. us. Right? And that hanging on to that as some sort of worth keeps us from fully being poor in spirit, right? So that's the word for poverty. The second thing is what does the world think of poverty? This is a pretty pretty short section because I don't need to, you don't need to hear the words of my mouth. You just need your own human experience to know what I'm about to say is true, right? As we read these words and as the Lord preached these words in his own on that day or whenever, Right? What was the world at large probably thinking as they were sitting around eating fish and crackers or whatever, sardines, right? What, really, what, what do you think that they would have thought when this guy that maybe some of them have been walking miles to see early on in his ministry, right? The kind of thing where it's like, I don't even quite sure who this Jesus guy is, but everybody's going to see. Let's go check him out. And you do. You make your way up here to the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum. You go out and you find him and you sit down and you listen. And the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. What do you think those people, what do you think they thought? I'm out. That guys? Nuts. What do you think people think of it today? It's no different today in the 21st century as it was in the first. It is the same world, right? And the world then and the world today says, no, assert yourself, praise yourself, encourage yourself, build yourself up. The Beatitudes of today, right, are blessed are those who are always right, blessed are those who are strong, blessed is the man or the woman or the child who's rich, blessed is the person that's satisfied within themselves, blessed is the ruler. Blessed is the oppressor. Blessed is the popular person. No different then and today. And we said actually last week, we keep, we're going to do this with the kingdom all throughout every, right? And we said that last week that Jesus as the Messiah in, God, in the gospel account according to Matthew, right, is the antithesis of everything the world believes about kings and kingdoms. And from right off the bat, he says, if you want to walk with Christ, you're going to have to walk right in the face of the world. You're going to have to go against the flow. You're going to have to do everything that seems abnormal to the generation in which we live. Right? And so for someone to say blessed are poor people in their spirits... Would have been foolishness. He was a fool in their eyes for saying these kind of things. Because in that day, as well as our own. All answers to life. All answers to blessedness. All answers for approval were found within the self. If you want to be blessed. Well, you're going to have to find something good within yourself to think about. To realize you have some niche in life. you have something to do that you're here for a reason. Right? And then when you find that, you'll be happy and you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed with yourself in love. I'm sorry, with love. With sensuousness. With the feelings that can be brought on by those things that titillate and stimulate us in society. Right? Drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Same old victim or uh, villains, right? Something outside that we want to try to get inside to make us feel a little bit better. The doctrine of the world. And even the in many ways, the church of that day and sadly, definitely churches today is that the answer can be found within self. Right. And this was in Jesus's day. And it was thought of as a Narcissian age, right? You may or may not remember a cat uh, from Greek uh, legend by the name of Narcissist. There's a legend told about him that he was so in love, right, with himself, but tragedy uh, befell him. Because one day he was walking around a beautiful garden. He looked into a pond that looked just like a mirror. And it was so still. And in that pond, he saw a reflection. At that moment, he fell in love and chased after an image of himself and drowned. Fell in love with himself to his own demise. And in the 21st century, I believe is the epitome of the narcissine age. Men and women are lovers of themselves, looking for happiness, blessedness, but they're looking for it for appro- from approval from one another, right? We need to be poor in spirit. First of all, to be blessed. Secondly, saved. And thirdly, matured. Again, I'm talking about basic basic Christianity here. This is the stepping stone for the more complicated theological stuff in many ways. Right? So to be blessed, we saw last week, Blessing. In, in our eyes, it's not going to be just happiness, but rather having the approval of God. Right. And uh, if you want God's approval, you need to be poor in your spirit. And I want to use David, King David, as an example. So let me turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 18. And this is the reason uh, why David was chosen of God. One of the reasons why he was chosen by God for the kingship... Is because of what we find in his words in 1 Samuel 18 uh, and verse, I'm sorry, 18 and verse 18. Uh, David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? And later we see in reference, later on in 2 Samuel 7 and 18, His reference to his actual kingship. And he says the same kind of thing. He says, who am I? Who is my family? What is my history? What have I that I should commend to me the throne and the royalty of Israel? Right? David asked that question. David of himself. Another example is this uh, cat by the name of Gideon. In the book of Judges 6 and 15. You may or may not remember that name, Gideon, but he was raised up by God and he took 300 men alone, 300. He wanted to take more men, but God said, no, 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 no. 300 is enough with you and me. And they went out and they defeated the enemy. But before God raised him up to victory, Gideon and his 300, he said these words. In verse 15, chapter 6 of Judges, he said unto him, O my Lord, Why would I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. I am the least of my father's house. I come from a poor tribe in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He is the small, he's the the runt of his family, and their tribe is the runt of Israel. Right? I'm coming from the smallest of the small. Why would you ask me to be governor? I'm from Agra. Whatever, you know. Nothing against Agra. Just smaller than small, right? Uh, so we need to be blessed. And we need this understanding of blessedness actually for our salvation to actually take its powerful effect here on earth. If you want heaven on earth, and, and not wait till you just till you die you have to actually fire up your salvation and get it working for you here on earth right so when I say you need this for your salvation or to be saved I don't mean like you've fallen out of the grace of God I don't, I don't mean that right I don't believe God's blessing upon you has an expiration date right But what I am saying is that you rob yourself of the power of salvation when, when we don't understand these things right? So we need to be blessed and we need this humility, this poorness of spirit also uh, to to be saved, right? We can't be saved without this humility. The Lord Jesus made it incredibly clear on multiple occasions. There are many people all over the place at this very moment, right? They believe that uh, being commended to God was the result of, of some other reason within themselves, right? Very few actually have empty blessedness, empty within, realizing that they have nothing to bring to the table to commend to God, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you're saved and not that of yourselves. Of course, faith saves us, but poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit, is the posture of faith, right? And again, just to remind you, why is it necessary for us to really lock horns with our inability to save ourselves? Is it because we need God to beat us over the head with a stick? No. It's because it's it re- causes us to remember that we need to go to the doctor. Okay? And the fact that there is a doctor is the good news. That's what we get to celebrate. We don't get to celebrate the grace of God. Until we enter that posture of faith. Right? So we need it to be blessed. Poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit. We need it to be saved. And the third thing, last thing we'll talk about tonight, I think, is that we need it for our own spiritual maturity. First beatitude, blessed of the poor in spirit. And I say this, why it's basic. Because if you ever outgrow the first beatitude, you actually outgrow Christianity. Right? We don't, We don't get one down and we move on to step two. It's not like that process, right? We don't get promoted down the line here that we have to carry it with us. If we want to grow, and what I mean to say is if we want to mature spiritually along Christ's pathway, right, we must be led in authentic humility, in poverty of spirit, and an acknowledgement and a recognition of our poverty of spirit, of the bankruptcy of our souls, right? In Revelation chapter 3, you see different, two different approaches, the same subject. Revelation 3, 17, uh, speaking, uh, Jesus is speaking to the churches of Asia Minor that exist at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century. And in Asia, one of those uh, churches was a church called L- Latiosia. You may have heard that, Latiosia. And Latiosia was uh, very proud of themselves. Uh, because they'd become one of the earliest churches. And they'd become very successful. And they had become kind of like uh, a first century chur- uh, version of a mega church. Right? They, had, they were really proud of themselves because, man... Financially, materially, the church was looking good, man. There was plenty of money in the bank. We were able to pay the pastor. That's a joke. Okay. (laughs) Well, Jesus, through John, says to them in Revelation 3 For you say, you, the Latiosians, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Jesus says, You do not realize that you are wretched pitifully poor, blind and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you might be rich and white robes to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. See thyself as thou art. I love that from the King James. The thought was that they were very rich, Right? And it was the ones who thought that they were rich were poor. If you put just a, like a page back to the left, chapter 2, verse 9, the other extreme, the blessed extreme. Uh, and he says this to the church in Smyrna. He says, I'm describing to you the church in Smyrna. I know thy works and tribulation, the trial and the poverty, but thou art rich. They had poverty, but poverty made them rich. The world thinks this kind of thought is idiotic, but who cares? Has the world got it right yet? Right? We need to recognize this as blessed wisdom. That it's, that it's in our weakness. It's in the vessel inside of you. Whatever you want to imagine, however you want to imagine the bucket that God needs to pour his spirit into so that you can be spiritually charged, whatever that is, right? It's that bucket, that weakness, that acknowledgement of the bankruptcy of our soul that is God's reservoir for his power, right? And the more stuff we keep in our buckets, the less power we can get put into us, Is that not what Paul says? For God said to him, and he says uh, to God three times, Paul does. He says, will you take this thorn away from me? The thorn in my flesh, this thing has come to be a messenger to Satan to buffet me. Take it away. And God says, we all know this, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. In Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, we read the account what's called the publican and the Pharisee. You may or may not know this story, right? The Pharisee goes uh, up to the temple with the publican. Uh, publican is like a rough kind of guy, a uh, 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 hillbilly, okay? Um, a scoundrel, holy man and a sinful man, thought of, that's we'd have been thought of. They go to the temple and the Pharisee says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, Right? And he goes through this whole long list of how he's fasted and how he gives money, how he goes to the temple to pray. He gives alms to the poor and all of this stuff, right? And the poor sinner gets up, bows his head, in shame before God, tokos, right? God, be merciful upon me, a sinner, right? Today, two people go into a church. One regular church member, one outsider, right? And the church member stands up and says, you know, I always show up for Bible study. I'm here every Sunday. I I put money in the bucket, right? I'm glad that I'm not like that other person, right? And not only they're wrong, man, they're dead wrong about, about being right. We should be proud of our faith and the actions we take within our faith. We should believe in them boldly, but Too much pride can kill us. That's why we need to be reminded of the blessed nature of the poverty of spirit. Right? We shouldn't be thinking of climbing the Christian ladder, but rather climbing down. Right? The first link, this is how we need to think. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but by my failing. Leonard Ravenhill, an evangelist, said, the person who has no ambitions, and therefore he has no, nothing to be jealous about. Right? A person who has no reputation, like Jesus himself. Right, Nothing to fight about. No possessions, so nothing to worry about. He has no rights, so he suffers no wrongs. He's already dead, so nobody can kill him. It's beautiful. Right? It's the scum of the earth for Christ. Right? W.P. Nicholson tells a story of, of how he was freed from public opinion. I I just like this image. I hope you can I hope I can paint the picture for you as I close. In his hometown, and there was a group of Salvation Army uh, people walking down the street. And four of them, and he was just newly saved. And the Salvation Army uh, got him and surrounded him. And he said that there was one that he was kind of considered the nitwit, or the dummy of the town. right? And he was dressed in a red uh, sweater, looked all goofy. And they asked him to join the band, and for some reason he did. And he realized at that moment he was freed from public opinion. And at that moment when he joined their band, he didn't care what anybody thought about him. Only what Christ thought about him. He was free by becoming poor in spirit. Any questions? Awesome. You know, whenever I listen to the words of Jesus and the instructions that he gives us and the Beatitudes, I can't help but think of maybe a, a parent or a teacher or maybe a coach giving us instruction, telling us the truth, the truth we acknowledge in our own hearts, what we need to do to be successful or complete whatever task that might be asked of us. And when we realize the truth, we recognize that that is something we want, but the thing we're asked to do is so difficult. In fact, in this case, it's opposite of what everybody else in the world thinks. And in a way, I can't help but wonder as Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, gives us the Beatitudes, I can't help but wonder under his breath, if he's not asking each one of us, how far are you willing to go? How empty can you make yourself so that God can be filled in you? What's the kingdom of heaven really worth to you? How far are you willing to go? Anyway, that's what I hear whenever I read the Beatitudes. Something to think about. Hey, until next week, I hope you come back next week. Until then, friend, be blessed. So, uh, again, uh, with this Bible study series, we're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at something called the Sermon on the Mount. Within the Sermon on the Mount, there are these things called the Beatitudes, and if we remember uh, from our very first session that the word Beatitude comes from the Latin uh, Beatus, and that word means blessed. What what does it mean to be blessed? And In week one, we talked about the significant difference that Jesus is talking about when he talks about how we're to live our lives and what can make us happy versus what can make us blessed. And we've learned already that, based on looking at Beatitude number one, that Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit, and that doesn't feel right compared to what we examine in the world. This week, we're going to look at um, those who mourn again, um, it's, uh, an upside down idea. It's inconsistent with what the world thinks, but we have to remember, we're not talking about happy. We're talking about blessed, which is more like to have the approval of God. We said in week one to be blessed is to have the applause of heaven. Okay. So just to refresh, and I'm just going to do this each time we look at each one of these because it's really uh, not that long uh, portion of scripture. So I'm just going to read again the sermon, um, beginning with verse 1, chapter 5, gospel account according to Matthew, and seeing the multitudes. He went up into a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, here's our beatitude number two. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. And remember, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, where shall it be salted? It's therefore good for nothing but to be cast out, trodden underfoot, You're the light of the world, the city, which is set on a hill, which cannot be hid. Neither do men or women light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before all, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is heaven. Think not, Jesus says, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill Verily I say unto you, till the heaven and earth pass, one jot, one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach people so, they shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case, no way, enter into the kingdom of heaven. We're looking at verse 4 of that sermon tonight, chapter 5 of Matthew. The second beatitude, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be uh, comforted. Perhaps we could translate this, and it sounds paradoxical again. It sounds contradictory but what really what's being said in everyday terms is happy are the unhappy. Happy are the sad. That's a paradox. It seems like absolute opposites. That someone who is mournful should be comforted, should be happy, should be joyful, should have satisfaction within them from being mournful, from being sad, from being downhearted. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Someone defined a paradox as Truth standing on its head, calling itself to attention. And that's exactly what this is. Jesus, in verse 4, is saying, Approved, blessed, accepted with God are those who mourn, for they shall be happy, they shall be comforted, they shall be satisfied. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said mournfulness is like a rare herb. It's an endangered species. It's something we don't come across often in the days that we live in. Why is that? Well, first, if we look at uh, verse 3, we'll see, as we said the last time, all of these Beatitudes actually relate one to another. And we're going to see as we go through each one of these that it has like a stacking effect as we read them. Verse 3 leads into verse 4. Verse 4 leads into verse 5, and so on. So none of them on their own are exemplary. We must take all of them in. We must believe and practice them all for this to work. We must look for these in all areas of our lives. Verse 3 we saw last time. To be poor in spirit means to have humility about yourself and your abilities. To be humble. Because you've been humbled by a vision of your own sinfulness before God. It's knowledge. Verse 3, beatitude 1, if you like, right? Verse 3 is intellectual, right? It's a recognition. It's knowing your sin and coming to a realization of it. But verse 4, number 2, is emotional. It's the effect that takes place in our souls and our spirits when we do realize that we're sinners, When we have the intellectual knowledge, the emotional experience kicks in. And not only do we now know that we are a beggar before God, but we begin to feel like one as well. That's the difference. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, intellectual. Number two, blessed are they that mourn, emotional. And I think it cannot be overstated here what... uh, what devastating words uh, we find in the Sermon in the Mount. I, I want us to notice, remember, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount being very early on in Jesus' public ministry. You might say that these are some of the very first words that Jesus ever uttered in His public ministry here in the Sermon in the Mount. And the first words... That Jesus the Messiah had to say was not peace, happiness, ease of life now because I'm here. These are not particularly comforting words. But as Jesus enters into this great sermon, which describes what the people of Israel need to do if they want to come back to God... We actually find that these are violent words. They're destructive words. They're words that when we hear them with the right set of ears should cut to the quick. A deal of a deathly blow to any form of our self-reliance, any form of self-righteousness. Anything that would say in us, myself and my hands, I bring, and then to the cross I cling. I want us to see the devastating nature of these words because it's unbelievable to think that we for as prideful as we are as human beings that that we cannot come to God by ourselves that's why the world around us doesn't like don't like these words because it means that we can't do anything to be saved and people don't like that to know it like we find here in the first beatitude Right? Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. To know it is one thing. That's where we find ourselves shifting here into an emotional response here for blessedness. Right? Because we start to feel the reality that we can't on our own power through our own righteousness come before God. And the self in us, that prideful self needs to be destroyed. Because if there's anything of that us in us left, we can't fully get there. We just can't. We can't come to God for salvation based on our own worth. And all of the things that this world teaches us are right and acceptable and good and comforting. All of these things, God has to destroy them all. God has to. And again, right, what are attitudes in the world today? We've seen over the past few weeks that the attitudes of the Lord, the philosophies, the doctrine that he is pr- presenting here in his first real public sermon, right, we've talked about this every single week that his idea of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven is the absolute antithesis. It is the exact opposite of everything that human society believes it should be. And that's not just true about our sinful, wicked world of today. It was just as true in Jesus' time as it is today. right? Which means that this idea of self-gratifying sin is not some byproduct of of the modern age. It's a reality, unescapably, of our human nature. And it's true for each and every one of us. And that is, it's also true, again, that if we were to go out in the street today... with a microphone or a bullhorn or whatever, and we begin telling people, you really can find happiness if you choose to be unhappy. Right? No, it's a good thing when you mourn. Your mourning will be comforting to you. Again, they would lock you up because in the world today, that philosophy That way of life doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be logical. It doesn't fit into our way of life, our thought patterns, our system of reason and logic. See, we in our society today, especially our society, right? One of the things that's true is to be unhappy is really not in vogue. It's it's not something that's looked upon, being unhappy. As a positive thing in your life. Because the world that we live in. Is still pleasure thyself. It's a a society that wishes. To bring everything. Right? Have everything brought to us. That we might satisfy. All of our fleshly lusts. And I don't mean just. You know. The physical stuff. I mean. The food. Anything that we can. Feel like we can. Fill some sort of empty hole inside us. That God-sized hole that only God can fill, right? right? But we don't often recognize it because we are so convinced that having the good time is still the goal. As long as we have a good time, no matter whether it's sinful or not, no matter whether we break the law or not, as long as it gives you a thrill, As long as it gives you a buzz, it's okay. Moral, immoral humans today, people have no morals. Amoral people, right? Are building around themselves a structure to be appeased and to appease every maximum entertainment and amusement in an attempt to be to make life one big party, right? And is that not true? We see this kind of stuff all the time. We celebrate it in our culture. Is it not true that the next step, stage, goal, every person strives to is the next high, the next thrill that they can achieve, right? And if they can't find that high, what And I don't mean, you know, just inebriation, whatever that thing is. And if they can't find it in their own personal lives, right, then they do often look to things like substances to bring falsely that high within their minds, to make them feel better. It's a sad society we live in, but to be mournful, to be unhappy, to be sad in our society today is to be a wet blanket. At any cost, the world will try and attempt to avoid unhappiness. And when the world should be and is meant to be crying because of our sinful nature, because of our separation from God, when we should be mourning that reality, instead we're laughing as a society figuratively. And when we ought to be laughing, sometimes we're crying, right? And I want to say this just before we dig a little bit deeper into the text here, um, because uh, I think that this is a part of it. And I'm I'm as guilty of this as anybody is, but it seems like one of the things that I think um, distorts all of this is it seems like in our world today, everything has to be a joke. We've, we've lost a certain gravity, a certain seriousness, right? And I don't, I'm not trying to be like the old man telling you to get off my lawn or nothing, but I have to also admit I'm a part of a generation that perpetuated this as well, right? And, and this, this non-seriousness about the reality of all of this and the dangers that exist when we don't take this advice is often the result of, the, of our lack of seriousness towards these ideals. And, and the truth is, it's not just something we see out in the society out there, but it's infiltrated the church as well, right? We see all the time, well, we, we, we all go to the same church, but you hear about churches that are always looking uh, to provide some sort of worship experience, Some churches do it through lights, through fog machines, through through loud music, right? And really, and there's nothing wrong with that style of worship, except to say that if what you're doing is trying to elicit an emotional buzz, a feeling of happiness, right? Then that feels a bit authentic, inauthentic, sorry, to me. And I'm not trying to uh, push blame on anybody for that either, because we Christians feel a pressure. This, this misbelief that uh, as a Christian, we're always supposed to be happy. right? If we're Christian, we're supposed to walk around with a perfect smile. We're always supposed to look the right way, have the right job, have the right kids, whatever. Right? Some Christians really do feel a pressure that comes with being a Christian because they think for some reason that they are a defender of the faith. Leading many of our world today to not preach sin or guilt because it makes people in the pews feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel unhappy. We don't want to mourn. We don't want to be sad. Tell us something that makes us happy. Tell us something that changes our emotions. Right? Let me tell you, what Jesus said, if you don't mourn for your sin and you're not poor in spirit, and if you don't feel sad, you'll never be saved. Because that's the reality of what he's saying. You'll never be saved. And that's not my judgment being cast upon you. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Specifically. Why? Because in order to truly be saved, you must see your sin. And if that sin doesn't make you sad, right, then you haven't fully seen your sin yet. You haven't seen your need for a savior. Neil Postman uh, has written a book and the title explains the whole book. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. We laugh at the things that we should weep over often. And we weep at the things in our world we should laugh at. We're blinded by it. But immediately, like children who've had our candy bar taken away from us, Whether it be our health, our wealth, whether it be our status, whatever it may be, we wail and we cry. But Jesus said, blessed are the mournful, for they shall be comforted. And so to look at this word, mourn and mournfulness, uh, as always, I would really like to take a second um, before we talk about what it means to be mournful, I'd like to first talk about what it doesn't mean. Okay. We're going to look at what it isn't, and then what it is, and then we're just going to put, then we're just going to simply put the phrase, and they should be comforted at the end. <laughs> right? Mournfulness is not Christians being perpetually morose, downhearted, downtrodden, boring, depressing. Christians that trip over their own faces. Right? It's not self-pity. Right. It's not what Jesus is talking about. First of all, this blessed mournfulness is not cheerlessness. Okay, Not cheerlessness. Uh, a famous author, a guy by the name of Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, he wrote this uh, one day sarcastically. He said, uh, I've been to church today and miraculously I'm not depressed and why would he make a statement like that because because of Christians that he's experienced in his life he thought that to be a Christian meant to be depressed you had to have a long face you had to be a dull boring morbid right type of person to go to that same kind of boring house of worship and the truth is many of us have experienced that ourselves, so can we blame him? There's a little girl walking in the country with her mother, and she pointed over at a horse and said, that horse must be Christian. Look at its long face. Sometimes we're like that. Now, that uh, that is not... (laughs) Sorry, that's not the mournfulness that Jesus is talking about. That is just being miserable. That's miserableness. In Proverbs chapter 17... Verse 22, we have the wise words of Solomon where he says this. He says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up bones. It's true that a laugh, right? Nothing wrong with a laugh in the right place. It's a time to laugh, a time to cry. There's nothing wrong with a smile on our faces. And if we're saved today and there's not a smile on our face, then something is probably missing. Oswald Sanders goes on to say, it's a warning for us all that we have already in the church allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church. We've cast too many pearls before swine. And the church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and instead, leaves it to TVs, the nightclub, and the internet. We need to be happy. And mournfulness is not cheerfulness. Less-ness. <laughs> Sorry. Secondly, mourning neither, right, is mourning about the difficulties in our lives. This is, I think, uh, a, a curious and interesting spot for a lot of people Uh, whenever they think about mourning and about looking at their own lives and the problems. But think about this, guys. The Bible never says that it's mourning in and of itself that's the blessed state. And mourning is not the mourning over the difficulties of life. It's not that either. Thirdly, nor is mourning in this context bereavement. Right? Mourning is bereavement, but not in this context. So what is it? Well, there are nine words, Greek words, used within the New Testament for this idea of mourning. All of them are used. There are nine words and they're all used. Uh, But the word that is used here in 4, chapter 5, verse 4, is the strongest and most descriptive version of the word mourning that that can be used. Uh, This version of mourning is also found In Genesis 37, verse 34, uh, it describes Jacob's sorrow and his mournfulness over his son Joseph, who had died. Remember, this is right at the point where his brothers had taken him and cast him into a pit, and then they'd taken his beloved coat of many colors and then spattered blood on it and brought it back to the father to tell him, your beloved son, he's dead now. And it says that he mourned. And the word that's used there is the same word, and it's the most descriptive. It's the word that's used in Mark chapter 16, verse uh, 10. When the, woman, when the women rather, who had been to the tomb after Jesus had rose from the dead, and they come back to the disciples, and they told them that He had risen, and they found them mourning and weeping that they had lost their Savior, that, that's that same version of the word mourning. So it's not simply cheerlessness, not the difficulties of our lives, not bereavement. Bereavement is a natural sorrow, right? These other mournings that I'm talking about can be unnatural. They're deeper than they often ought to be. And we often cry in the face of things we should be laughing at. But I'm talking about a spiritual sorrow. Let me illustrate it by turning to Psalm 32, written by David. Psalm 32, and if we, let me start with verses of 3 to 5, we can see godly, spiritually sorrow. Um, Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5, this is the way you feel. It's kicked in our intellect and our emotions now. And when we keep silent, our bones wax old through groaning all day long. Scripture says, For when I keep silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And the result is, you're comforted. The result actually in this instance shows us, comes back to verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. Verse 1 and 2 say, Blessed is he or she. Whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one unto whom the Lord does not credit iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. Right? Right. And this is the case as many Christians now, uh, as well as people who aren't saved. This is, we must cease trying to rationalize our sin in our lives and call sin for what it is. Sin, admitting what it is and then letting the horrors, the desolation, the degradation of sin perpetrate right into our very soul. And then when we do, emotionally, we weep, we mourn over it. It was Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cramner, during the English Reformation, Uh, He wrote a prayer book in 1662, and he wrote the Holy Communion part to put into the lips of church people words to say as they broke bread. Was he exaggerating, you think, whenever he said, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. That is mournfulness. Alan Redpath wrote a book on Nehemiah. I've referenced this book a ton in my Bible studies. Uh, That book's called The Making of a Man of God. And Redpath says, As I stand here this evening, I know I am capable of committing any sin under the sun. That is realizing how big of a sinner you are. And it was Paul in his later years... But as he thought, contemplated what he was, that he could actually say about himself, I'm the chief among sinners. As believers, as unbelievers, do we see our sin? Do we see ourselves as we really are? That this is all we are but sinners. But often, and it's wrong to not make much of the grace of God, but at times we make a lot of the grace of God, and we often make light of our own sinfulness before God. Let me point to you uh, back to our friend Jesus here. Uh, Jesus is also known... um, in a reference to Hebrew scripture as the man of sorrows. And it's interesting how we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel record, uh, that it's not recorded, I'm sure it happened, but it's, not re- it's never recorded of Jesus laughing or smiling. It's interesting. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't laugh or smile. Right. I'm not saying he couldn't laugh or smile, but why do the gospel recorders? Why do the Holy Spirit that brings that truth to us not bring that thought to us? Simply because I think the Holy Spirit wants us, Jesus, to see Jesus described as this man of sorrows. He was hungry. We know this. He was tired. He's going to bear the sins of the whole world. He heard in his ears daily blasphemy, profanity. He saw it. Sinfulness through his own eyes. The one who could not look upon iniquity. He saw all of those things in his very midst. He was thirsty. He was weeping. He was poor. He was angry. He was hungry. But chiefly, he mourned. Chiefly, Jesus mourned because of our sin. He mourned because of a people living in a sinful, lost world. We see that in the 23rd chapter of the gospel account according to Luke. Luke. Let me just go there real quickly. Remember the women are weeping for him. They're weeping. They they the crucified are weeping for the crucified Savior, verse twenty eight of Luke thirty two. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, "Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children." We don't have rec- recordations of Jesus' laughter, of his jokes, of his mirth. Not to say that he didn't have those things. We still don't have it recorded. What we definitely can pull from the gospel accounts, all four of them, Christ was definitely most acquainted with grief. So, do we see the sorrow of our sin? Do we see what our sin did to Christ? Right? I think we often don't fully. And I think there's uh, several reasons why we can't. Fully embrace the sorrow of our sins that we might mourn. Okay. One, again, I, I don't think you need me to tell you this. I think you'd agree. One is our love for sin. Let's be honest. We are sinners. So we are bound to sin and we are bound to love that sin, right? Love for sin makes it very easy for us to let go of other things. Two, I think another thing, another reason that causes us uh, mournfulness of our own sin, sorrow, to be a blind spot is despair. Sometimes we think we've simply sinned too much or that the nature of our sins has such gravity that God cannot ever forgive us. Thirdly, it could be our own pride. It could be conceit. I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need to turn from my sin. I'm not that bad. What should I even mourn for about my life? Right? Uh, uh, self-righteousness, again, has to be removed. All of the self-dash somethings have to be removed. For Presumption, the grace of God can and always just cover my sin. True, true. But if you talk that like that, you might never actually experience the grace of God. And uh, a penultimate one here is procrastination, simply just putting it off. Choosing to put it off and, and continue living our lives with sin. As John says, living in sin and not putting our sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. And six, lastly, I think one of the reasons why we can't see it for what it really is, is this idea again, everything's a joke, frivolity. I just don't care. It's just not that big of a deal. Right? Is that not why the great apostles... And all of their preachings always, uh, they always focus on this uh, sobering view of what life really is like. Not a lot of jokes are made. Because we're talking about your eternal life. But we're also talking about your opportunity to experience the kingdom of heaven now while you live. And friends, that's no joking matter. It's literally a discussion of life versus death. How do we mourn for our sin? Well, we look to the cross. We look to a sinless, spotless Savior... Suffering for our sins. That's like Sally selling seashores by the sea. Whatever. I didn't realize that it was all there when it came. (laughs) We must look to a sinless, spotless Savior suffering for sins. That are not his own, but ours. Christ dying by choice for you. Being made a sacrifice for your sin. And if that doesn't humble you. If that doesn't break you, if that doesn't put us on our face so that we can walk in the presence of God instead of being the dust, I don't know what is. Jesus says if you look to the cross, you can be comforted. If you mourn for your sin, if you let it eat within you, You will be comforted. And what does comfort in this example mean? Forgiven. Our lives will be changed. The Holy Spirit will enter in us. Interestingly, the word for comfort in its root in Greek uh, is the same word that we use for the Holy Spirit in Greek, which is the word, parakletos. Parakletos. And it means to come beside. Imagine arm in arm with somebody. To come beside in support, to comfort. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if we mourn for our sin, the Holy Spirit of God will come beside us, comfort us, taking us to the cross. We'll have forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. We'll have salvation. And this morning will elevate us. Christian and non-Christian, just like the prodigal, Luke chapter 15 and verse 18. What did he say? He says, when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, I have sinned in your sight and I am no more worthy to be called your son. Right? That's this emotional recognition of the true weight of the sins that we've committed. What is it to be comforted? I'd like to close with this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Amen? Let me close in prayer. Perhaps there's someone here. Oh, God, that, you know, needs to feel mournfulness in their soul about their sins, the emotion of a dying soul within ourselves. I pray that they look to you be comforted this evening. Lord, we say with the poet Roy Hessen, bend this stiff, stiff necked eye. Help me to bow my head and die beholding Christ on Calvary who bowed his head for me. Help us to be poor in spirit, but to mourn our spirit. And if we do, we inherit the kingdom of heaven and we be comforted by none other than the Holy Spirit of God and God's blessed fullness in our lives. Bless us now as we part for Christ's namesake. Amen. And next week we will look at uh, probably one of the ones that most people know, blessed are the meek. Right? Any questions? All right. Well, thanks, guys.